Welcome to the Get Over Yourself podcast. This is author and athlete Brad Kearns discovering ways to be healthy, fit, and happy in hectic, high-stress modern life. So let's slow down and take a deep breath, take a cold plunge, and expertly balance that competitive intensity with an appreciation of the journey. That's the theme of the show. Here we go. The Get Over Yourself podcast is brought to you by Almost Heaven, beautiful compact home use sauna kits, ancestral supplements, grass-fed organ meats in a capsule, DNA Fit, genetic testing for custom diet and exercise recommendations, Integro Health, high-potency liquid probiotic called Flourish, Organifi, organic powdered superfoods, delicious green, gold, and red powders, Wild Idea Buffalo, sustainable, grass-fed, beyond organic, real ketones, clean burning ketones for athletic performance and fat loss. And check out the bradkerns.com slash shop page. That's my personal selection of favorite products for health, fitness, and peak performance. And here we go with the show. We can talk about any compound that you want to talk about. If you look in the human body, it's doing something else bad somewhere else because it's not from our operating system, right? It's like people want to focus on the good thing because they want to sell supplements or because they want to pretend that there are these magical molecules that are going to make us live longer. And in fact, they're just not from our operating system. The fact that they could reverse atherosclerosis with that intervention is intriguing. And I think we need to say, okay, there's something there that's valuable. And I would argue that it was probably what they excluded rather than they, what they put in. And if you look at those people long term, I would suspect highly that they are going to get further illness. And that's what we see in plant-based communities. People develop autoimmunity, people develop depression, people develop nutrient deficiencies. So in the short term, a plant-based diet that removes artificial processed foods can be very helpful for people. But then in the long term, it's not sustainable and that's where the real problem occurs, right? I completely agree with you, and it's so interesting eating, eating a carnivore diet with a nose to tail, you know, eating all the organs and eating, you know, not just the muscle meat of the animal, you think like, wow, I'm pretty full. You know, I eat two meals a day, and if you look at what you're getting eating nose to tail with an animal, like, I'm getting an incredible array of nutrients, and I think you're totally right. I think that if we start replacing that with less dense foods or less bioavailable nutrients from those foods, we're really doing ourselves a disservice. And the more plants we put in our diet, we're just taking up space. And we're not getting the nutrients we need, and that affects health long-term. I want to enthusiastically recommend DNA Fit, cutting-edge genetic testing to deliver a personal profile that will guide your fitness and nutrition goals. So simple, you spit in a tube, mail it off, and soon you get by email the super cool infographic where it delivers all these important insights and elements of your genetic profile at a glance. How you metabolize carbs, caffeine, vitamin D, lactose, and much more. My exercise profile was mind-blowing because it revealed my genetic muscular makeup to be 54% 
power strength and only 46% endurance. As a lifelong endurance athlete, I've been banging my head against the wall, training in a manner that was in conflict with my genes. Don't wait 20 years making mistakes like I did. Find out what diet and exercise patterns are most aligned with your genetics at dnafit.com. This stuff used to be super expensive. It was a few hundred dollars. Now it's pennies. Not really, but it's a great deal. And you get 30% off if you just put in the code G-O-Y-30. Check out everything at dnafit.com. Hey, listeners, have I got a show for you with Dr. Paul Saladino, leading voice in the carnivore diet movement. And oh my goodness, this guy, he's been in my head for about six weeks straight since I first heard him talk at length about the rationale and benefits of the carnivore diet with Ben Greenfield. Every single day, this guy, I can't get him out of my mind. He's haunting me, tormenting me. And now he's on my show explaining for us with an incredibly compelling and scientifically validated argument that maybe, just maybe, plants, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, really not only aren't good for us, but might be bad for us. (laughs) He calls them survival foods. Of course, humans have been hunter-gatherers for eons, and that's the foundational premise of the ancestral health movement, but maybe it was by obligation because we weren't successful with our hunting. So of course we had to go find other sources of food. Look how much manipulation we have to do to make sure these foods aren't toxic when we soak and sprout and ferment and cook the vegetable foods of the earth. So this stuff will throw some of your fixed beliefs on your ear and force you to think critically and remain open-minded. Paul calls it a thought experiment. And starting with the beginner's mind, applying the beginner's mind to this critical thinking exercise. I think it's a wonderful exercise for any one of us. Even if we're really deep down into our fixed beliefs, it's great to question and challenge them at times. And heads up for the vegan plant-based listener. Paul shoots straight and he goes at it and he talks about his debate that he had with vegan advocate Rich Roll recently on the Minimalist podcast. So you got to go listen to that and also listen to Paul's new podcast called Fundamental Health. But whether you're suffering or complaining with a health condition right now, or you're someone like me who wants to go from level seven or level eight to level nine or level 10, and I don't even know if there is a level nine or level 10 because... I've been eating a certain way my whole life, or I've been doing things a certain way. So expanding the mind, dreaming of new possibilities, and doing some experimentation, I think this is a compelling, thought-provoking journey into the world of carnivore eating, nose-to-tail animal foods. Who better than Dr. Paul Saladino? He's trained as a classically trained MD in psychiatry. He's a functional medicine specialist. And he's such a cool guy. We connected immediately, so kind and open and generous with his time. He's en route from a move from the Pacific Northwest down to San Diego to catch some more waves, enjoy some warmer water, open up his functional medicine practice. What a privilege to go deep into one of the most intriguing dietary premises we have heard about in a long time. Dr. Paul Saladino, here we go. Dr. Paul, thank you for spending time with me. Good to be here, man. Of course. My pleasure. I, I am so excited because you've been in my head every single day for about five weeks now. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I pulled the Ben Greenfield. You guys talked for a long time, got deep into it. And 
I realized that this whole uh, carnivore diet, let's say, is an exercise in keeping an open mind and thinking critically because we dismiss things out of hand. And Danny Vega told me about the carnivore diet about two and a half years ago. He says, yeah, I'm just eating. Everything I eat is from a cow for 30 days and I'm taking my blood and it looks great. And I kind of scoffed at the notion because it was you're getting hit with something that's away from your uh, fixed belief systems. And so now, thanks to the world of podcasts and the internet, we can be absorbing all these new ideas. And then uh, what's what's our starting point? Just before we hit record, you were talking about how you got into debate with uh, Rich Roll and they did a show about it. So that's my, that's my lead in. I want to hear how that went and what do you think about maintaining an open mind and thinking critically? Oh, I love it. And this is probably one of the things that I appreciate most about a carnivore diet or just about medicine in general is that, you know... I'm finishing my residency here in the next week. So I went to medical school for four years, went to residency for four years. And I think it will come as no surprise to most people that within standard westernized medicine, I'm an MD, I'm classically trained. There's not a whole lot of critical thinking. There's a lot of really smart people who know how to deal with like really complicated problems. But mostly what we do is we generate algorithms and then we follow algorithms and there's not a whole lot of critical thinking. And I love the carnivore diet. I love the idea or the, the path that it's led me on for this last year. It's just been like just long held paradigm after long held paradigm just falling away. Whether it's plants are good for you. Fiber is good for you. Polyphenols are good for you. Meat is going to cause cancer. LDL is good for you. I mean, this, this dietary movement challenges almost every single long-held belief in mainstream medicine. And that, I believe, is why it's challenging environmental things you know i mean like you were saying i just went on the minimalist it's going to be out in june with rich roll and we had a bit of a debate and discussion and you know i i will say that i really felt like i was able to disabuse him of many of these notions i mean he's a great guy i respect him greatly he was under the impression and i don't know that he would admit that he has changed his mind at this point but he was under the impression that a vegan diet was better for the environment and i had to really take issue with that and say no you just can't say that that is not true we can dig into it here if you want but i mean there was just something that people were posting the other day white oak pastures in georgia had a third party come out and certify them and look at their their carbon emissions and the carbon cycling and with their, you know, agriculture, with their grass-fed raising of cattle, they are carbon negative. They're like somebody with solar panels on their house that's generating power, you know? They're like, they're carbon negative with ruminant agriculture. So to say that a plant-based agricultural system is in any way better for the planet is just false. And many of the other notions around plants being good for you or animals being bad for you just fall away when we look at the data and when we look at people eating this diet. It's incredible. And it and it, you know, I think, and then we start to step back and say, well, what other beliefs do I have that need to get, you know, dropped away? And I, I love this idea of like beginner's mind and just losing the conditioning. And most people, when they hear about a carnivore diet, they just, they say, that's crazy. Like you did, like I did, like almost everybody did. 
And then it's so cool when we realize, wait a minute, maybe this is actually a very viable way of eating for humans. It's really cool. So beginner's mind, uh, when we have the, uh, the, the plant-based, the vegan mindset is A, protecting the environment from the disastrous impact of the, the feedlot operation. So maybe there's a distinction between sustainably raised animals and uh, the, 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 the uh, agriculture houses. Uh, but that, that's, that's a, a huge pillar that they're standing on. And so now you're saying that, uh, I guess, well, we have the wheat fields and the mechanized farming that are cranking out your, uh, your sprouted bread. Those are causing some damage. Oh, absolutely. If you look at the greenhouse gas emissions, I mean, plant agriculture is essentially even more damaging in terms of greenhouse gases than animal agriculture. And, you know, rich or vegans might counter and say, well, much of that plant agriculture is going to feed the cows. And I would say, uh, no, 85%, you know, of a cow's life is on pasture. They're not in feedlots from the time they're born. And so I don't believe that most of the agriculture is going to feed cows. But, you know, what we know is that plant-based agriculture generates quite a bit of greenhouse gas in general. And if we're talking about loss of animal life, which I think is kind of one of these vegan, you know, ethical arguments, there are so many by kills or animals that are killed in the harvesting process. And I mean, animal agriculture and plant agriculture are intimately connected. They cannot be separated. If, if people who are eating a plant-based diet imagine that those plants are grown in soil that does not have animals in it, they're wrong. I mean, the way you get healthy soil is you put animal bones and animal carcasses into the soil or animal manure. So you put blood and bone from animals into the soil, and that is what returns organic nutrients to the soil, the phosphorus, to grow crops. And so monocrop agriculture is slowly, well, rapidly eroding the topsoil, causing oxidation of the soil, and we are losing expiration date. You know, I heard someone say, I think it was her, her who said that, you know, we lost all of our topsoil in 1950. We should have been, that should have been the end of our, ag- our agriculture then. And we figured out this NPK fertilizer. We're adding back sort of exogenous fake phosphorus to the soil. But animals do that in the natural way. Animal agriculture adds back the phosphorus, adds back the organic material to the soil in the way that we should be doing it and creates much more healthy soils. And that is where we get our nutrients. Right now, we are living on borrowed time because of monocrop agriculture. If we are not returning nutrients to the soil with ruminants, we are doomed. We are doomed because we will not be able to continue to grow healthy plants in that monocropped soil. So yeah, the idea that animal agriculture is a bad thing or is contributing more greenhouse gas or a large amount of greenhouse gas is just false. If you look at EPA and FAO numbers, you know, these are non-biased sources. It was funny in the podcast, Rich kind of scoffed. He said, oh, the EPA. And I was like, the EPA doesn't care. You know, the EPA is not a cattle lobby. Like, what is your problem with this? But, you know, animal agriculture is like 3.7% of greenhouse gas emissions and plant agriculture is like 4.5% of greenhouse gas emissions. So the greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture make up about 10% or a little less. The majority of greenhouse gas emissions are from Um, are from technology and industry and things that we all cherish and drive our cars. And, you know, we need to figure out how do we mitigate that? And, you know, we need to eat something. And it's just a crazy notion that animal agriculture is really bad. And yes, the vegans will, I shouldn't say that just the vegans, but people will point to environmental 
consequences of feedlot agriculture. And I agree. I think that ideally all animals would be uh, grazed and grass fed from the minute they're, you know, their, their entire life. But I think that if we're only feedlotting animals for 15% of their life, we have to think like, well, that's not as big a contributor as many people would argue it is. I mean, it's not probably the best way to do it, but, um, and it certainly uses up greenhouse gases in a way that's not negative, like white oak pastures is with grazing. But to imagine, I mean, during the podcast, Rich was like, oh, ruminants are the third greatest contributor to greenhouse gases on the planet. And I, I was like, no, that's wrong. You're, you're wrong. Like, you're just wrong. Like, and I think that's what many vegans imagine or plant-based advocates imagine is like, we are saving the planet. And it's just, this goes back to the idea, like you aren't, you're killing the planet with your monocrop agriculture. If we got rid of all the ruminants, you know, the global change in greenhouse gases would be 0.39% down. 0.39. It would be insignificant. In the U.S., it would be like 2% less greenhouse gases if we got rid of all the ruminants. And our, our agriculture, our ecosystems would collapse and we would all die. Doesn't sound good. Doesn't sound like a good thing, especially when we know that animals are so nutritious for humans and they really represent the op, like the optimal nutrition. Like You can't even compare the bioavailability of animal foods, the bioavailability, the nutrient density of things in animal foods versus plant foods. There's no comparison. Yeah. And I think when we, when we try to take a stand and uh, live by a certain moral compass and, and draw these lines, it turns out that a lot of these lines are becoming arbitrary, whereby uh, I, I remember back in the day when South Africa was getting the heat for their apartheid regime. And so we were told to divest from any company who did business in South Africa or any mutual fund. And then it turns out, well, like, uh, let's see, just about every company has some sort of connection to South Africa. And similarly, if you want to have that moral stand that you shouldn't kill another animal, um, you forgot about the, the mice that are getting into the rototillers of the, the wheat bread that you're eating. And so then every all the lines are blurred. And then we get spit out the other side going, well, uh, what should I do? I want to I want to be kind to animals and be a good steward of the environment. And that's the main vegan uh, talking point or the the um, you know the, the rationale for eating this way so if if that's um, if that's put aside for a moment I think you talked very well on opening up a can of worms there now we got to go to the health aspects of trying to trying to avoid cancer pain and suffering and demise uh, what's the best way we can eat and we've been told for so long that uh, this this varied diet with all these beautiful uh, fruits and vegetables and colorful high antioxidant things it's almost indisputed, all the other stuff is in deep dispute about whether you should have meat or not. Uh, but now, now we're calling into question that the foundation of the colorful diet, that's what, what would you say, Paul, is that 99 point something percent of all health experts are going to say, well, at least we can agree on vegetables and fruits. That's exactly true. It's so funny. You know, I did a debate with Lane Norton on Mark Bell's power project. And, you know, he said, you know, he said, just wait, somebody's going to say vegetables are bad for you. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I think I've heard other people say that, whether it's Mark Hyman, who I also respect but disagree with, or, you know, Chris Masterjohn or any of these other people, you know, they will say, yeah, everybody agrees vegetables are good for you. And we can all agree that, you know, you should, the more fruits and vegetables you eat, the better. And I, this is what I think is so fascinating. It's like, well, let's pull the rug out from under that, too, because, um, let's just do a thought experiment here. And I think this thought experiment may at first seem a little bit controversial, but I promise you it's, 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 it's leading us somewhere. So if we think about this, 
if you are a human, what would be the best food for a human? I'm losing you, man. Dang. Yeah. Uh, it was cut. I see you now. Yeah, I, I turned the video off because I was losing the, the audio there. Oh. Dang. Um, I, I sometimes, sometimes it's better with the video off, so maybe I'll try that. Yeah, you want me to turn my video off? Yeah. Um, okay. Just Are we for, just going to, is this just going to be audio? Yeah, it's just going to be audio. I was just doing oh, it yeah. so so we could talk. We could but, see each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I can turn mine off, you, too. You're looking good up there in Seattle, man. Okay, there's this picture. <laughs> yeah, that, too. Um, so say that uh, mind experiment thing over and over, and hopefully we won't have... I mean, start over from there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry so, about that. No worries. This, sounds, so think, this actually sounds better, so I think something happened. We were doing good. Yeah, I think that there's this idea that sometimes with the video, it can just get pixelated with Skype and... Um, I apologize if my Wi-Fi is not the best. I mean, it's a strong signal, but who knows? So if we think about, I love this thought experiment, and at first it may sound controversial and crazy, but just bear with me, and I think it'll make sense to people. There's this idea that, let's just ask the question, as a human, let's just think about this with a beginner's mind, what would be the optimal thing for a human to eat? If we were to eat this food, we would know we would get every single food, every single nutrient we could ever need. What would be the best thing? If we could eat one thing, people kind of scratch their heads. And I mean, my response is, it would be eating other humans. And of course, nobody's going to eat other humans. But it's like, if you're going to make a Honda Civic, you go to the junkyard and you look for Honda Civic parts. You know, If you're going to make a Ferrari, you got to use Ferrari parts. And the reason I use this as an illustration, and perhaps it's too hot for TV, is that the idea here is that if you were to eat another human, you would clearly be getting everything you need. Like if it's not in a human being, you don't need it. And so if we look at, well, what's the next best thing for a human to eat? And I am in no way, shape or form suggesting that humans should eat each other. That's not a good thing. Although I think throughout human history, it has happened. What is the next best thing? Is it a piece of broccoli or is it a mammal that looks a heck of a lot more like a human physiologically, biochemically than a piece of broccoli? And it's obviously mammals. It's obviously animals, right? Animals are constructed in the same way as humans. Biochemically, we are essentially 99.99% the same. We do the same biochemistry. We do the same cellular respiration. We have muscles that work in the same way. We have bones that are built on the same matrix. We have organs that are the same. We have a heart. We have a liver. We have a pancreas. We have a spleen. Animals have phase one and phase two detoxification. So eating an animal is clearly the way for humans to get everything they need. And if it's not in an animal, why would we imagine that we need it? Because that animal is essentially the same as a human. Does this make sense? Is this too crazy? Oh, it makes sense. But I'm also wondering, like, is someone is someone capable of countering this and saying, you're crazy, it's the broccoli that we need? Is there, is there a possible counter to this? Well, I think that, you know, if you extend the sort of thought experiment further, we say, 
you know, just look at the bioavailability. Just take the bioavailability of nutrients in animal foods versus plant food. No. like humans that are omnivorous or I would argue carnivorous, eating from the same operating system allows us to get programming that's much more compatible with ours. Whether we're talking about heme iron versus non-heme iron, whether we're talking about niacinamide versus nicotinic acid, these are animal versus plant forms, whether we're talking about retinol, vitamin DHA, EPA, and DPA, which are the forms of omega-3 acids that our brains actually use versus ALA, which is alpha-linolenic acid. And so, like, if you look at the nutrients, plant-based nutrients are, like, a completely different operating system. They are, they're PC, and we are Mac, and obviously <laughs> you can see my bias there. It's like the, the nutrients are in the same form that humans need because they, they're making essentially something that is very similar to a human. They're making an animal. It's just like a human. It's the same thing, essentially, in terms of biochemistry. Of course, it looks a little different, but if you look at the biochemistry, our genetics are so equivalent. So all the nutrients are so much more bioavailable in animals. There's no question. It is very, very hard to get the nutrients we need from plants. And, you know, plant-based advocates would say you can get the omega-3 you need from alpha-linolenic acid. Theoretically, maybe, but in practice, it doesn't work well because people don't convert to EPA, DPA, and DHA very well. The omega-6 fatty acids in our diet can inhibit the enzymatic system, which uses the same cascade. And so people on plant-based diets usually don't get enough of EPA, EPA, DPA, and DHA. So this science discussion of converting the, the oils is... Um, is paramount to human health because there's few things more important than omega-3s, right, Paul? Yeah, I mean, the omega-3s are important, and I think we don't know how much we should be getting of them. Many people believe that it was our increased access to omega-3s like EPA, DHA, and DPA that allowed our brains to grow big, and that's just a theory. It may have also been increased access to, to fat calories, but you know, this idea of omega-3s really mirrors what I was just talking about, the, the concept that if you compare the bioavailability of plant foods versus animal foods, there's no comparison. There's just no comparison. And why, why are we surprised at this? You know, animal foods are from the same operating as humans. Animals biochemistry looks just like ours. And so whether we're talking about niacin or other B vitamins or vitamin A or omega-3s or um, other nutrients, you know, it's, it's very similar when we're getting it from animals and we can use it so much more easily than it is when we get it from plants. If we're trying to get omega-3s from plants, we're stuck with getting alpha-linolenic acid, which is very poorly converted to EPA and DPA and DHA. And I am saying DPA. Many people haven't heard of that omega-3 and often it's not even in omega-3 supplements, but it's an omega-3 that's in a lot of animal-based foods and is very important for humans as well. Um, perhaps it's an argument to actually eat whole foods as opposed to a fish oil supplement. I would certainly argue to that extent. But ALA has to be converted to those omega-3s, and the conversion is a series of desaturases and elongase enzymes that are also used by the omega-6 family of fatty acids. And so if we are getting too much omega-6 or not 
genetically gifted with uh, delta-6 desaturase or elongase enzymes, which work well, we are going to be very poor at converting ALA to the usable omega-3 fatty acids. So just an illustration that plant foods, they don't really work that well with humans. And if you eat an animal nose to tail, you're going to get everything you need. But you know, if you eat broccoli nose to tail, there's not even such a thing. Broccoli doesn't have a nose or a tail because it doesn't look like a human. And you're just you're going to be so deficient in so many different nutrients. So if you're trying to construct a diet that's plant-based, you have to work incredibly hard to get all the nutrients that you're going to have to make a human function well. And even if you're doing that and you are the best plant-based eater on the planet and you're getting everything you could possibly need, you're going to have to take supplements because you can't get any P12 and there's essentially only one source of zinc in the plant-based kingdom, et cetera, et cetera. But all the nutrients that you're getting or the majority of them are in forms that are inferior to animals and you're just not going to be able to absorb them as well. You know, iron is another great example. It's just heme iron is so much more absorbable from animals. So animal foods are clearly the source of the most bioavailable nutrients for humans. It's, it's not even a question versus plants. I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva. This is a new zero-drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five-toe design from my main man, Mark Sisson. Paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot style experience, but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years, but Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. Well, you might know that minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in paluvas, living in your paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green please visit paluva.com, that's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code BRADPODCAST and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. I want to tell you about wildhealth.com. They're an online provider of comprehensive precision medicine and health consultation services. They offer DNA analysis, custom lab panels, extensive medical intake form with family history and lifestyle preferences, and regular online visits with a board-certified precision medicine physician and a health coach whom you can message anytime through their convenient app. 
Wild Health evaluates your data to determine what you need for nutrition, exercise, sleep, and supplements, and you can experiment, consult, and retest to get everything dialed in. You'll get a cutting-edge epigenetic test of DNA methylation to calculate your all-important biological age and have fun lowering your age over time instead of following the mainstream path to accelerated aging. It's time to strive for awesome instead of just normal. Did you realize that only 6.8% of Americans are deemed metabolically healthy and only 2% are declared optimal? That's disgraceful, but you can turn things around quickly. Please visit wildhealth.com and you will see that this is the absolute gold standard of personalized medicine and it's available to you right now. Telemedicine available anywhere in the USA. Wild Health is generously extending BRAD podcast listeners 20% off the cost of membership. Just visit wildhealth.com slash brad or use the code brad20 at checkout to get 20% off and start taking control of your health today at wildhealth.com slash brad. Now, would there be some individual variation with uh, the genetically... A fortunate person who's uh, standing on the top of the mountain pounding their chest saying how awesome it is to live a plant-based lifestyle. Are these the fortunate few where this really is working better for them than the next person whose gums start to recede and their hair starts to fall out when they, when they go into plant-based? Yes, I think there is genetic individuality. And, you know, one of the things I've said before is that plant-based foods are survival foods. And it does appear clear that there are some people. <laughs> the, the, these uh, these talking points are so elegant, man. I mean, it's kind of um, there. There might be some people crying right now to hear that, but it makes so much sense that you know, survival food's an important term. And when you're trying to survive and you haven't killed an animal for a while, that's great. Go go pick your berries and uh, uh, pull your tubers out of the ground. But to put them in that category, that's where we start to expand the mind here and um, go on, go on, the survival foods. Yeah, I mean, plant-based foods are survival foods. And it gets back to this idea of humans as what I would argue are facultative carnivores. And that's just this concept that rather than being obligate carnivores, which are animals like lions and tigers that must eat, must eat animals, all the time and cannot eat plants under any circumstances. We, since probably since we evolved from herbivorous animals, primates, we have this sort of neat little trick in our back pocket. If we're not hunting well enough and we're not killing animals, we can eat some plants, but we probably shouldn't be eating plants long term. They're really just survival foods. They're clearly second order foods. And if you look at indigenous cultures, they'll say this repeatedly, that they only eat plants when there isn't any quote unquote real food around. And so my strong concern with the plant-based movement is that plant-based eaters, people that are eating a lot of their diet from plant sources, even you know people in the functional medicine community who are adopting highly plant-based diets, you're making the majority of your diet survival food. Why would you not just make the majority of your diet the most optimal food for humans, which is pretty clearly animals? And we can get into the arguments that people make for plant-based eating or even you know, omnivorous eating in a moment. But clearly there are examples of people who do better and worse with plant foods. Rich Roll is a good example. You know, He appears to be thriving. I'm not sure what kind of supplements he's on. Um, and I suspect that he's on more supplements than, than he admits to, but you know, if you have certain genetics, perhaps you can live longer, you can do okay on plant foods. But if you just get back to like where we're coming from with this discussion, 
I would strongly argue that Rich Roll and people that appear to be doing okay on plant foods would do so much better on animal foods. And that's the experiment that's not ever done, right? There are, there are well, I guess it has been done, actually. There are tons of people now who are well-known vegans who have gone carnivore. And I think this is just such a funny thing, and it, it probably speaks to the passion of these people. They, they're vegan, and then they go straight carnivore. You know, There's great examples of this. Well-known vegans who are saying, I was getting super sick, and it takes years to see the sickness kind of set in, and then they go and eat animal foods, and they feel so much better. And so I would that's the experiment that a lot of these people who are doing vegan diets and saying they are thriving have not done. You know, Rich Roll has never done a carnivore diet. He looks back to his history and says, um, you know, I was an out-of-shape lawyer, and I was, but he was eating standard American diet. So we have to be careful what, ex, what, you know, what experiment we're looking at here. Standard American diet to vegan diet, sure, people might see some benefit. They might lose some weight. But show me the person that's done vegan to carnivore and feels worse, you know, or carnivore to vegan and feels better. Like, well, I mean, uh, also, just to just to back up, uh, you know, I, I did a podcast with my old friend, Rip Esselstyn, who was a professional triathlete. We raced together for a long time and we're, we're very, very good buddies. And we, we catch up with each other and we, we talk diet because he's the best selling author of the Engine 2 Diet and Advocating for the Plant Strong Lifestyle. And his father, Dr. Codwell Esselstyn of the Cleveland Clinic, has reversed heart disease through dietary intervention with a plant based diet. So they have their statistics, they have their wonderful success stories. Uh, Esselstyn was first working with these patients that were so far down the line with heart disease, they were called the Walking Dead. And he uh, put them on, uh, you know, strict plant based with almost no fat, and their pipes got all cleaned out and they walked out of the hospital. So, you know, the, the passion and the, um, you know, the conviction that people have for departing from the standard American dietary centerpiece you're going to succeed in any direction. You're going to succeed wildly when you stop going to uh, Jack in a Box and 7-Eleven Slurpee. And I think that's kind of uh, when you're when you're bouncing these comparisons back and forth, we have to realize like the context at all times to be able to even verbalize an argument, uh, you know, the, the departing from a horrible starting point and making progress is fantastic. And we, they all deserve accolades for saving people's lives in the in the plant based community. Uh, but then at a certain point, like my follow-up question to you is like, um, I I feel fine after eating broccoli. I'm not highly reactive, right? And so I'm, I'm making this choice to eat this food uh, because I think it's good for me and it's going to extend my life and has nutritional benefits and no downsides. But then I have to ask myself, well, what is what is good and what what is potentially great? I don't know. So you know, the 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 rationale for making an experiment of thirty days carnivore now hopefully is starting to heat up with with all the listeners going. Well, this guy sounded a little crazy, but what what do you have to lose if you're going toward the proven nutrient dense foods of the planet? I mean, I would agree with you there. Let's back up a minute and talk about the Esselsteins. I think that it's a, it's a very interesting thing that they've done, and it's a very valuable intervention, but we should not conflate that with the idea that it was the plants that did it, right? Um, I think that it's pretty clear that removing oxidized omega-6 and seed oils can be incredibly healing for people. So to imagine that it was the strict vegan diet that was healing is perhaps a misinterpretation. And we don't know exactly what did it. And 
the fact that they could reverse atherosclerosis with that intervention is intriguing. And I think we need to say, okay, there's something there that's valuable. And I would argue that it was probably what they excluded rather than what they put in. And if you look at those people long term, I would suspect highly that they are going to get further illness. And that's what we see in plant-based communities. People develop autoimmunity, people develop depression, people develop nutrient deficiencies. So in the short term, a plant-based diet that removes artificial processed foods can be very helpful for people. But then in the long term, it's not sustainable. And that's where the real problem occurs, right? People think, oh, this is great. I lost a lot of weight. Well, yeah, you lost a lot of weight because you're calorically restricting. And we know that people who lose weight are going to improve their metabolic markers. But wouldn't you want to lose weight and restrict you know, calories or um, you know, improve your metabolic markers on foods that are more nutritive that you can be on long term. So I think that one of the main problems I have with plant-based eating is sustainability and long-term activation of the immune system and nutrient deficiencies. So that's the thing that I don't think the SL signs ever did was what do we, what happens when we follow these people long term? I think like 85% of people don't stay on a vegan diet long term because it's just not sustainable. The body eventually rebels and goes, Hey, like, great. You cut out the processed foods. You cut out the omega-3, excuse me, the omega-6 oxidized oils. Fantastic. That might be a real key to what's causing atherosclerosis. And if you stay on that plant-based diet long-term, you're probably going to crash and burn. And so with regard to what you were saying about the broccoli, we should just talk about broccoli because I think broccoli is a wonderful illustration of this concept. Like, you said that you were eating the broccoli because you, one, imagined it was good for you, and two, thought it wasn't bad for you. Well, I would challenge both of those notions that, <laughs> <laughs> that, the, idea that the idea that broccoli is good for us and not bad for us, I guess those are kind of the same idea, uh, those, are, those are not really built on solid foundations. And if we really dig into it, what we'll see is that's the whole side of the equation that we haven't even talked about, this concept that like plants are not wanting to get eaten. And almost invariably, if you look at vegetables, there are anti-nutrients and toxins in those vegetables. So let's just look at broccoli as an illustration here because it was something that everyone champions. Now, broccoli is the flowering part of an ancestral mustard plant. So they're all in the brassica family. People may have heard that. And why have we been told that broccoli is good for us? Well, I don't even really know, but I would suspect that people would say, well, it's got fiber. Okay. We can talk about fiber. And then they'll say, well, it's got this thing called sulforaphane, which I've heard is good for me. Rhonda Patrick talks about sulforaphane. And so it's beneficial for me. And then they might say, oh, it's got antioxidants. And I, sulforaphane is essentially the quote unquote antioxidant people want to talk about with broccoli. So the whole family of broccoli is the brassica family. And sulforaphane is part of this family of compounds called isothiocyanates. So where does this come from? Where does this notion that isothiocyanates are good for us come from? It's a series of experiments that were done wherein people were fed broccoli sprouts or broccoli sprout extract, which had sulforaphane or other isothiocyanates in it. And in a controlled experiment, they were able to see that DNA damage was lower in those people. Okay. So that's just this sort of controlled experiment. And that's true. If you give someone sulforaphane, you can show in cell culture or in the human that the DNA damage is lower. So let's explore why this happens. This happens because of a process called hormesis. And hormesis is a process where a small amount of a toxin may be good for us. Now, in this case, sulforaphane is clearly a toxin. And I don't think people realize this. Sulforaphane 
isothiocyanates are toxic molecules. These are plant defense molecules. And I'll show you why in a second. When we ingest sulforaphane, it doesn't have any unique role in the human body. It doesn't do anything in our biochemistry. Our body detoxifies it immediately through the NRF2 pathway. And it does a few other things in the body that are damaging, and we'll talk about those. But it's this process of detoxification of sulforaphane through the NRF2 pathway that generates an increase in the enzymes in our body that make glutathione. And then glutathione moves through our body, acting as an endogenous antioxidant. And that's what improves DNA damage. However, this effect of sulforaphane is not unique. We can generate glutathione on our own, and we can achieve optimal antioxidant status without any sulforaphane. There are studies that I've noted in my Instagram and on other podcasts about cold water swimmers in Berlin. If you have cold exposure, if you have heat exposure, if you exercise, all of these are hormetics that are not molecular hormetics. They're environmental hormetics. And these are part of what I would call living a radical life. So if you do these things, you can increase your glutathione normally and you can achieve optimal antioxidant status without these exogenous plant molecules pushing up your glutathione. Well, at this point, somebody might say, well, why wouldn't I do both? And here's the rub. Here's the most important part. And this goes back to what we were saying with different operating systems, is that even though sulforaphane, as an illustration of this concept, is doing some good things in your body, potentially, by increasing glutathione, it's also doing damaging things. And this is what no one ever focuses on in the research, because the research will only focus on the DNA damage. It will not focus on the fact that sulforaphane, while it circulates in your body, also competes with iodine at the level of the thyroid and can induce hypothyroidism. So you are hurting your thyroid by taking sulforaphane. And sulforaphane, because it's a known oxidant, also causes oxidation of lipids in membranes in your body, creating the same compounds that oxidized omega-6 fatty acids can cause in your body, namely 4-HNE and acrolein, which have been shown to be correlated with things like atherosclerosis. So we have to remember that isothiocyanates like sulforaphane are oxidants. They are not antioxidants. If we are getting a benefit from them, we are only getting a benefit because they increase our endogenous antioxidant system. And I would argue strongly that that effect is not unique and that there are collaterally damaging things on the back end, iodine, oxidation of other fatty acids, potentially other negative things with our genetics. This whole family of isothiocyanates, which also includes molecules like allyl isothiocyanate, have been found to also damage DNA directly. They cause DNA breaks. This is called clastogenesis. And why are we not surprised? Because broccoli is not an animal. Broccoli doesn't look like a human. Broccoli doesn't make sulforaphane for humans to eat it. It makes sulforaphane to discourage animals from eating it. This is what we're not thinking about. We have to just think about this with a beginner's mind. Like, broccoli doesn't want to get eaten. I've joked about this on my Instagram. Kale doesn't love you back. It's trying to hurt you because you're killing it. And if we just back up one more step and look at sulforaphane as a pro-oxidant molecule, the molecule sulforaphane or allyl isothiocyanate do not exist in the plant because they are so pro-oxidant. They would kill the plant. They would create free radicals in the plant. So what the plant does is it stores those molecules in safe precursor forms. And we see this in plants repeatedly. These precursor molecules that combine with an enzyme, in this case the precursor molecule is glucoraphanin, the enzyme it combines with is myrosinase, and those two only get together when an animal chews broccoli. So if an animal chews broccoli, then sulforaphane gets made and the plant says, ah, I'm going to get you, animal. You're eating me. I'm going to create this toxic compound. I'm dead. 
but I'm going to discourage you from eating my friends, right? That's what the plant is doing. We see the same thing with cassava. And the process is that linamarin, which is the precursor in cassava, combines with linamarinase when the root is chewed and you get hydrocyanic acid, which is hugely toxic. Toxic. It's a cyanogenic glycoside. If people are familiar with cassava, they'll know that it's a root that's been used repeatedly and they have to detoxify the heck out of it. Humans spend so much time detoxifying cassava because it's frankly toxic. And we see this pattern with plant foods throughout human evolution. If we are going to eat plant foods, our ancestors have always gone to great lengths to detoxify them. And that's because they're survival foods, right? Like mm. we can't eat them easily. So like uh, soaking the nuts, uh, so fermentation, forth. Look at egg corns, soaking fermentation. Yeah. And if you look at what's been done with brassica vegetables, they've traditionally been fermented into sauerkraut and kimchi and all these other things. Well, what does that do? The fermentation process degrades the glucosinolates. It degrades the isothiocyanates. So that is what we're, that's what our ancestors were doing. They were saying, hey, if we're <laughs> going to eat cabbage, we're going to get rid of these toxic things because clearly we know there are toxic things. And so in the end, you're left with essentially mush, right? You're like, okay, you're just – at that point, you're eating – the plants for macronutrients, not for micronutrients, because, you know, people should not imagine that they're getting any antioxidants or any of these isothiocyanates from fermented foods like kimchi or sauerkraut, because those have all been detoxified, right? But people don't realize this. Basically, when you're mm -hmm. eating sauerkraut and kimchi, you're just getting mush. You're getting macronutrients. <laughs> you might be getting some carbohydrates, right? But you're not getting any of the nutrients that people imagine they're getting. And we can talk about the probiotics, and that's a whole different story. But that's what our ancestors did. They fermented beans. And this is when they were like, hey, we have hunted the animals to extinction. We can't get animals. We better figure out how to eat these plants. Well, you better detoxify the heck out of them because they're not good for you. So hopefully that example with broccoli kind of helps illustrate what's going on here. And I'm supposing that we can go down the line now with our wonderful pomegranates and blueberries and have a similar story of these being uh, sort of hormetic stressors to the body. And for those of us who are uh, getting a little glazed over with the uh, with the uh, the scientific dives, I mean, the, the essence of it here is that we're eating something that uh, creates a stress response in the body. It's not a terrible long-term one where we're going to get sick, but that brief uh, natural hormetic stressor we know from, you know, primal living, just like jumping in the cold water and getting out, you get a hormone boost, you get an uh, apparently an antioxidant boost uh, or a boost in uh, the internal manufacturing of antioxidants because you've eaten a plant poison. Is that sort of a, a, a layman summary of what you just talked about? Yes, you can get a hormetic boost from eating the plant poison. But remember, the other thing that people don't talk about, that those plant poisons will, they'll get us in the end. You know, you may get a hormetic boost in terms of glutathione, but if you look carefully, and we can talk about resveratrol, we can talk about curcumin, we can talk about any compound that you want to talk about. If you look in the human body, it's doing something else bad somewhere else because it's not from our operating system, right? It's like people want to focus on the good thing because they want to sell supplements or because they want to pretend that there are these magical molecules that are going to make us live longer. And in fact, they're just not from our operating system. Why do you need something from a plant? Look at an animal. It's just like you. Everything you need to be a healthy animal is in that animal. And if you try and eat things from plants, they're just going to hurt you in the end. You may get a little glutathione, but it's going to have other negative effects that you can't avoid. So I would argue they're all net negative. And check this out. 
If you look at studies that have been done with fruit and vegetables, I love these. There are actual fruit and vegetable intervention studies that have been done. And when they're ranging in length from four to 10 weeks, what they did in these studies, there's about five of them. They took people and they divided them into two groups. And one group ate a bunch of fruits and vegetables on the order of like a number of pounds of them a week. And the other group had zero or a very small amount of fruits and vegetables. Like they had groups of people who ate no fruit and vegetables for 10 weeks, right? And they had another group that was eating five to six pounds of fruit and vegetables per week, right? A huge amount. And included in that fruits and vegetables were things like apples and oranges and brassica vegetables, Jerusalem artichokes and broccoli, all the things we've been told are very beneficial. They outline which fruits and vegetables they want people to eat. And at the end of four weeks or at the end of 10 weeks, they looked at oxidative stress, DNA damage, and markers of lipid peroxidation. And what do you think they found? No difference. No, no difference. So the idea, and in one study they found worsening, right? There's an incredible study that I can give you the title of if people want to read it, where they found worsening of oxidative stress parameters when people ate flavonoid-rich vegetables. And in the other studies, they found no difference, suggesting the notion that fruits and vegetables are benefiting you from an oxidative stress or DNA damage long-term has never been supported by an interventional study with fruits and vegetables. This is mind-blowing, right? You can take the sulforaphane and you can look at it in cell culture or you can just look at DNA damage short-term, but when they do the interventional studies, there's no benefit. Why are we eating them? And then the other thing is, even in these studies, they're not even looking at the way that the vegetables could be negative. They're just looking at the things that they thought were gonna show benefit because these are the people, Mm. they wanted to say, hey look, eating fruits and vegetables improves DNA damage, it improves your oxidative stress markers. Lo and behold, they couldn't show that. It didn't change it. And people will say, well, it didn't make it worse. Well, there is one study that shows that it was worse. And then I would argue that they didn't look at the right outcomes. They also didn't look at thyroid function. You know, they didn't look at overall iodine levels. There are so many metrics that we can look at for a human. But if we look at overall health, there's no evidence that fruits and vegetables are beneficial. And people are going, then why the heck am I eating them? (laughs) I don't know. Uh oh, we just got one of our soundbite quotes right there. <laughs> this is really, uh, hopefully, people aren't uh, dropping off the line, you know, like on a live show. Oh, okay, line seven's open now. But if you're still with us, if you're still listening now and tripping out like I am, uh, it also occurs to me, Paul, that there's an opportunity cost to reflect upon here, whereby I, I, I can only eat so many calories per day, right? I don't, I don't want to blow up like uh, a violent Beauregard in, in Chocolate Factory. So if I'm going to uh, use my budget wisely for the amount of nutrition I want to get into my body, uh, anything outside of the incredible nutrient density of uh, the animal foods is going to have an opportunity cost, even if it's a net neutral, like uh, someone wants to argue back uh, when you're down the street and, and shopping at the store that um, there's a benefit from having these fresh blueberries. Uh, boy, and then you're starting to load your plate up with vegetables as we've been taught to. Um, pretty soon we're eating less of the salmon eggs and the pastured eggs and all the, the great things that we know have the most concentrated sources of nutrition. I completely agree with you. And it's so interesting eating, eating a carnivore diet with a nose to tail, you know, eating all the organs and eating, you know, not just the muscle meat of the animal. You think like, wow, I'm pretty full. You know, I eat two meals a day. And if you look at what you're getting, eating nose to tail with an animal, like I'm getting an incredible array of nutrients. And I think you're totally right. I think that if we start replacing that with less dense foods or less bioavailable nutrients from those foods, 
we're really doing ourselves a disservice. And the more plants we put in our diet, we're just taking up space. And we're not getting the nutrients we need. And that affects health long term. And it affects health long term because we're not getting the nutrients we need and because of these anti-nutrients in plants. And one of the most radical ideas of a carnivore diet is that these anti-nutrients in plants go beyond these so-called antioxidants, which are actually plant pesticides and extend to things like lectins and oxalates, which are directly damaging humans. And I would argue that plant foods are probably one of the major causes of autoimmunity. So not only are we decreasing our overall nutrient density, we are creating immunogenicity in our diet. We're triggering the immune system. And I think it's important here because you've talked about blueberries a few times to make the distinction between fruit and vegetables. So let's just talk about plants in general. So we could make a pretty fairly accurate statement to say that the most toxic part of a plant is the seeds. And that includes seeds, nuts, grains, and legumes. And so even people on paleo diets might be surprised and say, oh, I thought seeds and nuts were good for me. Well, no, they're actually still seeds, just like grains and legumes. And those are highly defended. If you look at the amount of sulforaphane precursors in broccoli, where do you think it's the highest? In the seed, the expensive, (laughs) the stuff that uh, Ben Greenfield had in his freezer and said that the the kilo of the very most precious uh, broccoli seeds being the, you know, the the powerhouse is the absolute worst thing you can eat of the plant. And why wouldn't it be, right? (laughs) The plant doesn't want you to eat its seed. You're killing its babies. Right. So when you say um, protective, you're talking about the plant's defense mechanisms that are going to be offensive to the human consuming it. Yes, or other animals consuming it. And so there's a few pieces to kind of discuss here, but yeah, and so that the next most defended part of a plant is a sprout. And then you get into like the roots and the stems and leaves, and those are not quite as defended, but they're still defended. And then the least defended part of a plant is the fruit, because generally the plant, I would argue with fruit, the plant is using us. The plants have outsmarted us, because plants and animals have been co-evolving for millions of years. Plants want the fruit to get eaten, so they generally don't make the fruit directly toxic. But that's a very different distinction to make from making the fruit directly toxic to making the fruit beneficial for humans. So the plants are going to put a whole bunch of sugar in the fruit, and I would argue this is sort of like plant pornography. The plants are using us. They're making a very sweet, seductive, attractive thing that doesn't really give us any long-term benefit. There's no good long-term relationship there. You know, like this is not a good partnership. This is not a long-term relationship. This is just a fling with you and the plant. And you say, (laughs) Oh, that fruit is really good, but it just leaves you in the morning, right? There's no long lasting benefit from the fruit. The plant is using us. Plants are using us with fruit. And people would say, I can hear all of the the arguments coming back at me right now. So I try to address them in my own mind. You know, people would say, what about all the polyphenols in fruit? And I would say, remember, think about the studies that I was just telling you guys about. You know, when we look at the studies looking at DNA damage and oxidative stress, we don't see any benefit. There's no clear evidence that any of those polyphenols in fruit are doing anything for us. And again, why are we not surprised? That's the plant operating system. The plant is not giving you polyphenols to make your life better. The plant is putting the polyphenols in there as pigments. It's a plant pigment. It's not a human pigment. It doesn't participate in our biochemistry. And I think this is the thing that most people don't understand is that plant molecules do not participate uniquely in human biochemistry. There's no widget in the human cog and wheel system that's like, oh, I need a plant molecule there. No, it's all animal molecules, right? Like 
there's nothing if we like imagine the inside of a watch with all the gears and levers that's how our biochemistry looks there's no part of that biochemistry that we are creating that needs a plant molecule zero because it's not the same operating system there's no part of a mac program of a mac program that says oh i need this driver from a pc you know oh can you please install the, the ibm driver uh, you know you don't open your mac and it says oh please install your windows driver now like that doesn't happen that's not how it works and generally, when you install the Windows driver, it's going to mess up your computer, just like all these plant molecules are just going to run amok in our bodies and create net negative. So for people to imagine that blueberries are so beneficial, it's like, look, I fear that we've been sold a bill of goods here. We need to actually look at the data and say, hey, they may taste good. And if you want to eat them, they're probably not the worst thing on the planet. But are they really benefiting you? Probably not. I would argue no. And if we think about fructose and insulin resistance – Leptin mechanisms in the brain, I think you can make a strong argument that if you eat too many, you're just going to have a problem. And then you look at fruits and seeds and even things like blackberries, very high in oxalates. Well, I should say moderately high in oxalates, which we know are these sort of like two carbon molecules that can form crystals and we can go down the oxalate rabbit hole. But even some of the things that we hold dear, berries, blackberries, oh, they're like the best thing in the world, full of oxalates. You know, it's really scary. Oh, mercy. So if you're uh, calling into question the uh, the micronutrient benefit of eating these things, then we're just getting the calories, the macros. So um, the the urgent, desperate human need to have a handful of blueberries to get a bunch of fructose calories is obviously, um, well, m- maybe not obviously for everyone listening, but you know, for those of us in the ancestral community that are awakened to the idea that we don't need sugar to survive, uh, then we have. I guess the only rationale left is to say that I absolutely love the delicious flavor of these fruits and vegetables that are in my diet. Uh, but now, after listening to this show, we have to acknowledge that we're eating these uh, basically for um, uh, for indulgence rather than uh, in the name of longevity. And that's what's been tripping me out for the last five weeks, Paul, is every time I, I consume anything that's from the from the plant kingdom, uh, I'm, I'm getting like an emotional charge here, feeling guilty rather than patting myself on the back. And it's, um, boy, I, you're making a convincing case. And I, I think uh, some of these things people are going to have to uh, catapult to, like it's, it's virtually indisputed. I guess some people can come back in other ways, but um, we know that we can get the operating machinery from, from animals. That's, that's undisputed. And then we have to decide, um, should, we, should we only eat them? And so that's kind of, um, I guess, the primal paleo ancestral enthusiast that's listening is already convinced in the importance and the benefits of eating animal foods. I guess the next step down the road is to uh, become convinced that we need to uh, sacrifice these other ones, even even if we do like the, the, the broccoli slathered in the butter and the blueberries in the summertime. Hey, ladies. You may have heard me talk about Gainswave treatment for improving male penile vascular health and sexual function, and maybe you thought, hey, what about my needs? Well, Gainswave has got you covered with a revolutionary new treatment protocol called Gainswave for Her. 
As with the male Gaines Wave treatment, a skilled practitioner uses a handheld device to send low-intensity shock waves into your vaginal area to stimulate a healing response, promote increased blood circulation, and the growth of new blood vessels after a series of 6 to 12 very brief treatments, which are painless but extremely effective, you get real results with Gaines Wave reporting an 80% success rate. Some benefits. You will revitalize your intimate relationships with heightened sensation and arousal and enhance pleasure and satisfaction. Don't contemplate invasive procedures or uncomfortable medical treatments. Regain confidence and reclaim your sexuality with Gaines Wave for her. You visit the website gainswave.com, G-A-I-N-S-W-A-V-E.com slash Brad to find a practitioner in your area. You complete a series of treatments and the beneficial effects will last for a long time, especially if you eat and exercise well to promote overall vascular health. It's a tune-up for your equipment. So please visit gainswave.com slash Brad to find a practitioner in your area and take advantage of of my special promo that you'll mention when you find your local practitioner. Buy six treatments and get one free. I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near infrared for red light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes. And there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to right get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period. 
and a special 5% discount for B-Rad podcast listeners. Just visit mitoredlight, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. And I think you bring up a great point here that we've touched on a little bit. And I'll remind people that plants are survival foods. That means that we probably would have eaten them at some point in our evolution. So if people enjoy them, that's totally fine to eat them. Just don't imagine that they're really doing you any good. And that's okay. We can eat for indulgence. Like life is about enjoying things. But then for the subset of people who aren't where they want to be, who aren't kicking as much butt as they want to kick, kick, or who are sick, who have autoimmune disease, I think that that's especially where things like a carnivore diet are very interesting because it's like, wait a minute. I might like the broccoli slathered in butter and my, you know, the part of me is like, yeah, you probably just like the butter. You know, you probably don't, I bet if you just, you could just eat the butter without the broccoli. You know, your mom doesn't have to know, but you can just eat the butter on a steak and it's better for you. But, you know, I think that I've seen this in my practice and this is what we see in carnivore communities is that people who are not getting better, people who have nagging issues, whether it's GI, whether it's autoimmune, whether it's uh, psychological or psychiatric, whether it's sleep, whether it's libido, whether it's energy, you got to start asking yourself, could this be related to plants? And then people have to make this quality of life determination for themselves and say, what's more important? You know, do I want to eat blueberries and broccoli or do I want to see if I feel better without plants in my diet? And that's an individual thing. It is not my role to tell people how they're going to eat. It's just my role to offer the idea that these plants are really not that beneficial. You're not doing yourself any benefit by eating them. So if they're causing problems for people, a lot of people feel better when they cut them out. You know, and that's, that's, that's the, that's the neat thing about this is just an option for people who are really sick or who really want to optimize. That's kind of what I was talking about before with like Rich Roll or other plant-based guys. It's like, how good do you want to be? You know, do you know how good you could be? Do you know how good you could feel? Do you know how good you could perform in every area of your life? And then people have to say like, you know what? That's amazing. Maybe they'll do it and they'll do a carnivore diet and they say, I felt amazing, but you know what? I want to have some blueberries with my daughter. That's awesome. Do that. It's totally fine. It's not going to kill you, you know? But if people are really sick with autoimmune disease or inflammatory disease, I just want people to know, like, hey, the plants can be causing this. The plants can cause this and give people another option to get better. And I've heard this time and time again in my own practice that, like, people will say the carnivore diet was the single best intervention I ever did. It was the most powerful thing, especially for people with inflammatory bowel disease or GI issues, constant gas, bloating, diarrhea, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. The removal of fiber is often so healing for people. It's incredible. It's just a good intervention for people to know about. If people are already doing awesome in their life, why change? Don't change. You know, listen to this podcast, share it with your friends, but don't change a thing if you're doing, if you're living the life that you want. But if you want to be better or something is nagging or you know someone that's sick and isn't finding improvement or they're seeing a functional medicine doctor and they're on 35 supplements, which I would argue is the worst <laughs> thing ever, you know, you got to know there's hope. There's other things out there. And I think this is why the carnivore movement is so powerful, especially from my perspective, because it offers this really basic kind of reset for people. Just go back to your most basic, optimal, primal foods and start there and see how you feel. And then you can add foods back in if you want or... If they make you sick, don't add them back in, but you got your health back or you made a really important step toward that. That's the option. It gives us such a powerful lever to pull. Like if we just know, and I'm writing a book and I talk about this in the book, if we just know what's written in the operator's manual, if we know what's written in the user manual, it says, hey, your basic diet is eating animals nose to tail. If all else goes wrong, just do that and see how you feel. Like that's the first sentence of the user manual in the chapter that says, what the heck do I eat? That's the first sentence. 
And people can return to that and say, hey, I'm so confused about food. I'm sick. I'm not doing better. I'm eating paleo. I'm eating primal. I'm eating keto. I still feel shitty. You know, there you go. You know, there's your answer. And you see it time and time again, people with like lupus or rheumatoid or fibromyalgia or, you know, really bad psoriasis and they're not getting better. Keto, paleo. It's like, hey, maybe the plants are triggering that and they're not really doing anything beneficial for you so you can get rid of them. Well, I, I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody in that category who is super awesome and ha- I, mean, I, think there's, I think there's three categories. You're either sick, suffering, complaining, right? You got excess body fat, you got some autoimmune, you know something's just not quite right, or you have a desire to further optimize. And so I'm, I'm kind of speaking for the, uh, this group here where um, I want to be the best I can be. And if you tell me that this is how I should eat the rest of my life to guarantee that I'm going to live to 123 and break world records in the years ahead, I will dutifully comply uh, without uh, regard to, um, you know, losing my enjoyment of the, uh, the, the weekly slice of cake or whatever you're telling me to eliminate. And then I guess the third category is the, uh, the stubborn, closed-minded individual who thinks that they're uh, awesome and optimized. I mean, you know, LeBron James is going on podcasts and telling the world that he has egg whites in the morning. And it's like, wait a second, you and all your handlers and all the science and research out there and you're still touting egg whites shows that even the greatest on the planet, uh, you know, have potential for uh, beginner's mind and, and trying to make progress here. So this is why I'm, I'm so excited to get down this line here. And I think we should um, talk about this fascinating connection between your, your professional practice in psychiatry and the, the dietary intervention. Yeah. So like I said in the beginning, I'm a traditionally trained MD. I'm just in the last week of my four-year residency in psychiatry. Congratulations, Dr. Saladino. Thank you. Thank you. Moving to San Diego to surf and do functional medicine. And functional medicine, for people that aren't familiar, I imagine mostly everyone isn't familiar with this term, is just root cause medicine. So I don't even think of myself as a psychiatrist, but I have an interest in mental health. And I think that we should because mental health affects a huge number of people on the planet. And I think that what we're seeing now, if you look at the numbers, the morbidity, the depression and anxiety lead to more suffering than anything else on the planet now. And those are WHO numbers that it's the number one cause of morbidity and mortality. Well, morbidity on the planet, depression and anxiety, more than heart disease, more than cancer. So the loss of productivity, and I would argue the loss of human enjoyment and the the burden of human suffering from depression and anxiety are the biggest uh, thing on the planet. And so we're clearly doing something wrong. And one of the reasons I went into psychiatry was because it was human and I enjoyed the human connection of people in the narrative. And the other reason was because it's totally messed up. It's a bad antiquated paradigm. And I wanted to be a part of changing that for people. And one of the paradigms in psychiatry that I think really needs to change is this idea that you have a, a neurotransmitter deficiency causing anxiety or depression. That paradigm is completely wrong. And I think what we're beginning to see now very clearly, is that in fact, it's inflammation in the brain. For most people with psychiatric illness, it's brain inflammation. Psychiatrists are brain rheumatologists. You know, I'm a brain rheumatologist. I treat autoimmunity and inflammation in the brain. But most psychiatrists don't think of that, right? That's what they don't imagine. They don't realize, whoa, you've got an autoimmune disease in your brain. You've got inflammation in your brain. And that looks like cytokines. That looks like macrophages being activated. That looks like chronic inflammatory illness in your brain 
And that's why it's so hard to function. That's why your brain feels broken. That's why it feels like your brain is on fire and you're irritable. You don't sleep. You have bad libido or any of these other things because your brain is inflamed. Just like your skin can be inflamed with psoriasis or eczema or your joints can be inflamed with rheumatoid arthritis or your, you know, your face can get a rash with lupus or you can get other you know, autoimmune inflammatory illnesses in your body. That's what your brain is doing in depression and anxiety for the majority of cases. The caveat there is that for some people, they go through very stressful phases of their life, and they may have what's called an exogenous depression, meaning they're just super stressed. We know that can be a psychiatric thing. But for a lot of people, they actually have an autoimmune inflammatory illness in the brain. And then the question from a functional medicine perspective becomes, why? What is causing the autoimmunity? And this is what I love about functional medicine and what I really saddens me about mainstream medicine is that mainstream medicine doesn't ask why. It asks what? And, you know, it's just going to name a disease. And we're, we love to name diseases in, in mainstream medicine. It names diseases. And then it says, oh, I have a pill for that. It doesn't say why, because you're not going to have a pill for the why, or it's much harder to ask the why question. And so when you start to ask why, why is rheumatoid arthritis happening? Why is autoimmune, you know, hepatitis happening? Why is psoriasis happening? Why is eczema happening? Why is autoimmune depression happening? Why is, you know, why is the brain inflamed? Well, then we start to have to think about the mechanisms of autoimmunity. And I would argue that plants are at the root of that in many cases. There are other things that can trigger it, but I think that plant antigens are one of the main culprits here. And this involves plant pesticides and lectins. And the idea that lectins are these carbohydrate binding proteins that can come in our bodies and trigger immunologic reactions. They look like bacteria. And that we see this. We, we know there are examples of this. This is the idea with gluten, right? It's a type of plant molecule that triggers our immune system. And our immune system goes bonkers and causes rashes and causes so much immunologic activation in the gut that the little fingers in the small intestine regress and you get a gut that's smooth instead of finger-like villi and then your small intestine doesn't work and you don't absorb anything. But that is a plant molecule triggering autoimmunity. And it's the prototypical example of what's going on here. And I think this is what we're going to discover. And one of the major things that's incredible about, about a carnivore diet, that if you can remove these plant triggers, you can potentially ameliorate, reverse, make quiescent this autoimmunity. You know, you can remove the actual inciting factors and people with brain inflammation get better. And so what do we see? If you look on meatheals.com, one of the biggest categories, if not the biggest category of people sharing their personal stories with a carnivore diet, meatheals.com is sort of a repository for personal stories of people, is depression and anxiety, is mental health. And I think that anyone who tries a carnivore diet will notice benefits of mental health. Even if you didn't think that you had depression or anxiety, this was the first thing that I noticed. Within three days, and I did not have depression or anxiety that I knew of. Within three days, I was a happier person. I was a more clear-headed person. People might say, oh, it's the ketones. Well, I was actually doing honey for the first week of my carnivore diet because I didn't want to conflate ketogenesis with actual removal of plants and plant toxins. And I found benefits even when I wasn't in ketosis. And I appreciate ketosis, and I'm in ketosis all the time now on my carnivore diet. But in the beginning... I've heard this time and time again, people find these incredible mental benefits. And as a perspective, from the perspective of a psychiatrist, I will tell you that 
psychiatric medications, our treatments in psychiatry are abysmal. It's not for lack of good-hearted people or intelligent people. It's just that our paradigm is completely wrong. And I have seen people improve with anxiety in ways that I've never thought possible in psychiatry when they remove plants and remove the triggers and they correct this from an autoimmune lens. So I think for people with psychiatric illness, this is an incredibly powerful tool. And even for people who don't know that their brain isn't functioning optimally or they're not as happy as they could be, they're just a little more irritable than normal. This is what I call the, um, the are you going to yell at somebody in traffic test, you know? And you get, you get much stronger. You get emotionally resilient. Or that was my experience, and I've heard other people echo it as well. Like, I'm much less likely to yell at somebody in traffic now. Go ahead. It's just my end of one experience, but we see it all the time. Well, I mean, going back to the, uh, the gut function as well as your brain function, what's normal? What's, we have no idea because maybe our entire lives we've operated from um, you know, suboptimal dietary habits putting us at level six, and that's where we've existed. We don't know any better, and we don't know what level seven or eight or nine is. But you say in three days you can have the, what, what mechanisms are changing to that extent that it's affecting your uh, mood and, and all those things so quickly? I think it probably has to do with the immune system in the gut, you know, and we know that the immune system is connected with the gut through, the, you know, in the lamina propria, all the gut is there, all the immune system is there, or most of it is there. And it's, you know, the immune system gets activated and elaborates cytokines, and those can cross the blood brain barrier. And so whatever is happening with the immune system outside of the brain, it's transmitted to the immune system in the brain. And so I think that the plant, the hypothesis would be that the plant molecules can trigger the immune system there, they can trigger leaky gut, they can trigger release of zonulin, which opens up the tight junctions, and the molecules get in the immune system gets all activated and all up in a tizzy. And the immune system gets activated and sends cytokines across the brain. The brain macrophages get all, you know, messed up and they get angry. And so it's potentially related to some of these molecules and plants. And it's different for every person. You know, one thing might trigger someone else, might not trigger another person. But yeah, we don't even know. We can, I think when you function at level seven all the time, you don't even know what level eight is. And then you get to level eight and you're like, this is amazing. Like, then you get to level nine and you're like, oh, this is great. It's such a new thing. You never knew it, though. So where did you come from when you first started the carnivore experiment? Were you eating it in a certain uh, paleo-type alignment, or what did you cut out, and what was the, how dramatic was the transition? Uh, it was pretty dramatic. So, But you know, I've been thinking about food and nutrition for a long time. For the last 12 to 13 years, I've pretty much been eating exclusively organic paleo, uh, often autoimmune paleo because I had eczema that wouldn't resolve. And I thought, ah, it's something in here. I'm going to, maybe it's histamine or maybe it's this, or maybe it's that. And so I kind of knew there was something still going on. I was like, this eczema is bothering me. I am not in an ideal place. I feel like I'm eating the perfect diet. Um, and I was not totally where I wanted to be in terms of my skin. And little did I know I wasn't where I wanted to be in terms of emotional resilience either. So I heard about the carnivore diet when Jared, uh, Jordan Peterson was talking about it on Joe Rogan, and I thought, that is really cool because he talked about it from a psychiatric perspective, and he admitted that he's not a nutritionist, and he just mentioned it to Joe, and he talked about it from his daughter's perspective who had really bad autoimmune disease, and quickly what resonated in me was this idea that autoimmune disease is really hard to treat in medicine, and I think it's at the root of m most of what we treat is autoimmune. And so I thought anything that can help autoimmunity is something that I'm interested in. And I thought, I'm going to try that. And of course, the first notion was that's crazy. 
we need plants because they have unique molecules. I was indoctrinated. And then the more I thought about it, the more I looked into it, I thought, wait a minute, maybe we don't. And then, then it began, you know, this year long journey. And I read, you know, hundreds and thousands of, well, not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds of papers that, you know, help me understand like, wait a minute, we're thinking incorrectly about these polyphenols and these unique plant nutrients and we don't need them and they don't benefit us. And some people, there are things in plants that can cause real issues. Whew, this, the smoke is, uh, the, the smoke is clearing here, man. You've hit us with some, some mind blowing, <laughs> life changing insights. Can we hit some like one off, uh, points here? Like some of the common objections and just, uh, cover through some of this, Paul. Sure. I guess one of them is, um, you know, we, we, we've talked about the carbs and the excessive carbs are uh, highly objectionable. That's the, you know, the foundational story of the ancestral health movement. Um, but then when we get to protein, uh, we've been taught to kind of monitor that intake so that we don't uh, get into the excessive protein consumption beyond like one gram per pound of lean mass or the, you know, the widely, widely touted uh, guidelines. And if we do so, then we're into this situation of excess protein intake, stimulating the growth factors in the bloodstream and causing uh, accelerated cell division and cancer risk and so forth. Uh, so if you're in the carnivore pattern, it sounds like you're going to default into much higher protein intake than uh, than than you than you previously were were eating when you were trying to throw in all the uh, all the, uh, the plant foods. Yeah, this discussion is very interesting and it's a little complicated. So I'll try and clarify it for people. So what we're, what people are worried about, whether it's Walter Longo or Stephen Gundry, um, who I've disagreed with both publicly, and I'm actually going to be on Stephen Gundry's podcast later this week, so I'll get the direct opportunity to. Uh, discuss some of his issues <laughs> and debate him on that. But, um, you know, the idea generally centers around mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin. And the concerns expressed are that animal protein is going to trigger mTOR and that excess activation of mTOR is going to lead to excess anabolic sort of uh, excess uh, triggering of anabolic pathways in the human body. And potentially cancer. Well, there are a couple of things to note here. Context is very important. Are we eating protein in the absence of carbohydrates or are we eating protein with carbohydrates? So that is the first background context because the response of the human body in terms of insulin and in terms of IGF-1 growth hormone to protein in the context of carbohydrates is very different when we're not eating carbohydrates. And I will just back up for one moment and tell people that if we are truly interested in modulating mTOR and IGF-1, guess what is a much bigger trigger to those than protein? It's insulin. It's carbohydrates. And so we have to eat something. And that's what these pundits are not telling us. They're saying limit protein. Well, they're not telling you to eat fat all day, that's for sure. So they're telling you to eat carbohydrates. The problem with that is that if you look at studies carbohydrates trigger mTOR much more than protein. So this is absurd. This is absurd that we're thinking that, that we should be limiting protein and pushing insulin. Insulin is a valuable hormone that we use at different times in our life, but insulin will trigger mTOR much more than protein, specifically leucine. There have been studies that compared the 
triggering of mTOR with leucine and insulin, right? And what we find is that if you eat leucine, if you eat protein, you're going to trigger mTOR for about 30 to 45 minutes, and then it turns off. If you eat something that triggers insulin, if you eat carbohydrates, you're going to trigger mTOR for three to four hours, and you're gonna trigger mTOR in a different way, and it's gonna be triggered more robustly. So I think that this is the main point that people are missing here, is that if you want to modulate insulin, if you want to modulate mTOR, don't eat carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are going to spike insulin regardless of what diet you're on. And so the reason I put all of this in the context is that protein only has a strong insulinogenic response when it's eaten in the setting of a mixed diet, Hmm. when you're eating carbohydrates with it. So if you eat carbohydrates with protein, yeah, that's going to trigger insulin. But if if you eat protein without carbohydrates, it doesn't have the same insulinogenic effect. This has been shown repeatedly. So if people are really worried about longevity, overactivation of growth hormone, overactivation of mTOR, they should be worrying about insulin, not protein. Protein is very valuable for humans, and the idea that there's an upper level of protein for humans is just false. There's never been evidence to show that excess protein is damaging to the kidneys or damaging to the human body in any way. There were a series of experiments done on rats and mice in the 1960s that showed that methionine overfeeding was bad for longevity. Well, the thing that the researchers missed and then the following researchers a few years later figured out was that it wasn't that the methionine was bad. It was that they were imbalancing the methionine glycine ratio and that that was the issue because when they fed the mice glycine to balance the methionine in their diets, they had a longevity effect, right? So they saw when you fed glycine to mice or rats to balance the 2% methionine in their diets, the rats live longer. So it wasn't that the methionine was making them live shorter. It was that they were imbalancing the methionine-glycine ratio. People will always point to these studies, and it's really important that we really kind of nail these guys to the wall and say, are you talking about a human study? Are you talking about a mouse study? When was it done? Are you talking about methionine overfeeding? What are you talking about? Because from everything I've seen, the culprit is insulin. And not that you can't ever have insulin, and not that insulin isn't a beneficial hormone, but overactivation of insulin, hyperinsulinemia, especially insulin resistance, which has many mechanisms underlying it, these are the problem with cancer, mTOR overactivation, not proteins. That's a very, very important point to make. Well, I guess the keto uh, party line is that, of course, we're controlling that carb intake and minimizing the insulin production, but also wanting to keep protein in check in order to, uh, I guess, not interrupt the potential for ketone production and high levels of blood ketones. Right. And I disagree with that as well. All right. (laughs) Dr. Paul, going to town, everybody. I mean, I'm a disruptor, man. I'm yeah. a disruptor. You, you got to appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Iconoclast. R- really, uh, rich hole, rich roll driving home from that debate, whether he thinks he won and kicked your ass or whatever, whatever the scorekeepers are and all the people listening, you still got the conversation going, which is a, a beautiful thing. And, um, I, I really appreciate how you're, you're, you're free speaking, uh, everything that's, that's coming up. It's just, it's just a real, uh, uh, mind expanding, uh, uh, experience here. Yeah. I mean, I, I even told Rich after the podcast, Hey, I'd love to collaborate. We'll see if he actually wants to do that. <laughs> I suspect he doesn't, but we'll see. But that podcast is going to be out in June with the minimalist. But yeah, I mean, the idea that, that too much protein is going to kick you out of ketosis is something that's been debated now as well. And I think that, you know, on my podcast, which is Fundamental Health with Paul Saladino, MD, we can link to that and I'll tell you all about that. But 
I'm going to be interviewing Dom D'Agostino later this summer, but you know, I think that I think that people chase ketones too much, and I think the idea that a ketone level of one versus a ketone level of 0.2, um, I think that the idea that we can assign relative value to those is a little bit incorrect. Like, because we know there's individual physiology in terms of how we make ketones, and if you look at blood ketone levels, they can be very different between people, and. It's pretty interesting, you know. Some people I work with, they can't get their ketones above 0.3, and you're going to tell me that person just isn't good at making ketones? Like, no, it's something else going on. We're either using the ketones to make, you know, we're taking them down the mevalonate pathway, and we're making cholesterol with them, which is a good thing, or something is going on with those people that can't make the same levels of ketones. So I think we get too tied up chasing ketone levels. And I think if people are in ketosis, it's a switch. You're either in ketosis or you're not. And eating a lot of protein is not going to flip the ketone switch off. It may lower your ketone levels a little bit, but it's not going to switch the switch the switch the. It's not going to flick the switch off. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I I strongly agree with that because when I was doing the research with Mark Sisson, we were working on the Keto Reset Diet, which was one of the first keto books. And we didn't know nothing about this. So we had the beginner's mind going. And I'm here I am, you know, fasting, restricting my carbohydrates like I never have before in my life, doing my ambitious workouts, uh, pricking my finger after an 18-hour fast and, and not many carbs before that and getting low numbers and then having to figure out, like, what's wrong with me? How come I can't go on the inner on social media and put up, you know, these high values and, you know, learning about ketone flux from Dr. Kate Shanahan, where you're making whatever level of ketones you need to supply your brain with fuel at that time. And if you if you get more efficient as an organism, you might show lower ketone numbers because you're you're not wasting them and, uh, you know, in a panic from uh, not having access to, let's say, your muscles not being able to burn fat well, and then you get further down the road and uh, the numbers are less and less meaningful of anything. And this is this is this is what I think is true as well. That we shouldn't case chase ketone numbers. That that it's a switch, right? If you look at the physiology, in order to make ketones, you have to have, you know, insulin low, fatty uh, fatty acid lipase is high. You do beta oxidation, and that physiology does not change if you eat protein. If you eat more protein, you mm. may do a little more gluconeogenesis. You may get some glucose. Your ketones may go down, but the underlying ketone switch does not change. And so you're still in ketosis. Your ketone numbers may be lower, but the problem here that people run into in the keto community is that protein is very valuable for human. It's not the only micronutrient or macronutrient, but it's a very valuable macronutrient. And if we look at animals, a lot of the micronutrients in animals are found in the muscle meat. And if we just eat the fat, we're only getting the fat-soluble micronutrients. We need to be getting fat-soluble and water-soluble micronutrients. So a lot of people on ketogenic diets find that they lose muscle mass because they're restricting protein too much. So I think it's important to eat a lot of protein and then also to kind of, you know, to also add into your diet healthy animal fats. And I would argue, you know, like actual animal fat, tallow, things like that or where we're going to get these fat-soluble nutrients. So you need to eat both. And restricting protein is a bad idea for all kinds of things. I would argue for longevity from the standpoint of muscular health, bone health. We know that lean muscle mass is correlated with uh, longevity and robustness as people age. If we limit protein, you know, as we age, we're going to become sarcopenic. We're going to lose muscle mass. We're going to generate more fat mass. We're going to become frail. We're going to get hip fractures and we're dead. So protein is super important as we age. That's so important. 
Well, it also occurs to me if you're eating plenty of protein in a carnivore pattern and you're trying to lead a healthy, active lifestyle and, and get barreled down at Trestles or Black's Beach or wherever you're <laughs> uh, you know, putting the effort in. And I put a lot of effort into my surfing because I'm kind of crappy at catching the wave. So it's mostly like a paddling exercise out there. A lot of calories are burned. But it occurs to me that you're going to engage gluconeogenesis in a, in a beautifully elegant manner to continually restock glycogen because you're eating plenty of protein. Does that make, does that make uh, sense there? It does. And if you look at the study by Finney and Volek called the FASTER study, when they took athletes on ketogenic diets and they had them fat adapted for, I think it was 12 weeks, they looked at the amount of glycogen storage and replenishment in their muscles and it was equivalent to mixed diet athletes. So athletes who were eating carbohydrates. So after 12 weeks of a ketogenic diet, these athletes who were doing endurance exercise were storing and making and using glycogen at the same level as people who are on mixed diets. So it's like, wait a minute, like the idea that we completely eliminate glycogen from our muscles is false. We don't have no glycogen. There's an adaptation phase, but once you're adapted, once you're fat adapted, you will have glycogen in your muscles and you will store that and use it and replenish it just like somebody would who's on a mixed carbohydrate diet, except you're doing it with much more efficient fatty acid oxidation in addition and I would argue you're doing it in a much more potentially insulin-sensitive manner um, and that you are avoiding the negative things that can come with those carbohydrates. Oh, right. You're never, ever overdoing it like you are when you slam your hot fudge sundae after your 50-mile bike ride and then lay around on the couch and, and uh, eat more calories than you burned on the 50-mile bike ride. So it's, it's a beautiful thing. And the faster study was you know, blowing the lid off the, the previous paradigm of how we should fuel ourselves as athletes. So, Paul, I, I, I've been with you a while here. I know you're a busy guy trying to, trying to change the world. So uh, <laughs> if, you're, if, we're, if we're now convinced that it would be at least worth trying for a few weeks, um, can you help us with some, some go-to foods and like a, a simple, I mean, the nose to tail, you've mentioned that a few times. We haven't really hit that too hard, but that's so important not to just go and eat uh, hamburger every day for 30 days. Uh, so to be, to be sensible about this and to cover some of these bases, uh, what are some of your favorite highlight foods? Oh, and then also, does, does honey count as a carnivore so we can like put that in our coffee still? Or where do we stand with that one? <laughs> well, then you have to think if coffee counts as a carnivore, and that's where I'll lose a lot of people, but we'll talk about that. No, um, never touch that stuff. It's nasty. We don't need <laughs> coffee. It's the mo number one most abused drug in the world, right? It is. It is. Um, so on my Instagram, I collaborated with a guy and I made my own sort of nose to tail pyramid for carnivore, which people can refer to and will be helpful. But the idea with nose to tail eating is, you know, just imagine the way your ancestors would have eaten an animal. They're going to eat the whole animal. And so we try to recreate that in the carnivore world and think, or at least those of us in the carnivore world that are trying to eat nose to tail, we try to imagine like, what are the different compartments of the animal? Because we know that if we eat an animal nose to tail, we're going to get all the nutrients we need. And so from my background as a physician, with my interest in nutrition, I think like, where are the different nutrients in the animal? Muscle meat is valuable, but it's not the only thing we need to eat. We also need to eat organs. And I think liver is the best organ for people to eat. So if we're doing it very simply, we're eating muscle meat, we're eating liver, and we're making sure to get enough fat because if you just eat lean muscle meat, you're not going to get enough fat in your diet. So the fat to protein macro is valuable. So we're going to do liver. We're going to do some uh, fatty meats plus extra fat. 
And then we also need to get some connective tissue, which means eating the tendons on the steaks or supplementing with like a collagenous type of supplement. It's important to get a source of iodine, whether that's egg yolks, whether that's uh, salmon roe, whether that's um, you know brain or other pieces of the animal. And then it's important to get our fatty acids from somewhere. So either bone marrow or brain or salmon roe. And people are like, brain, I'm not eating brain. You don't have to eat brain, but bone marrow, salmon roe. And then it's important to get a calcium source, which is either eggshells or uh, bones. Um, and not bone, uh, not bone broth, because the calcium doesn't really come out, but mm. a, a very well-sourced actual bone meal. If you look at other carnivores, they all eat bones. We get bones to our dogs. We get bones to lions. And we need calcium. And so this is the thing that people often miss. And that may sound complex, but I'll just break it down for people at a basic level. It's meat, it's fat, it's connective tissue, it's organs, and it's, um, and it's calcium. And you just think you're eating the whole animal nose to tail. And a lot of those foods are things we're not used to eating, but you know that's the way, in my opinion, that you want to construct a nose to tail carnivore diet. And so for me, and this is just my, how I do it, and I get up in the morning and I will start with um, sort of the fatty foods first before I eat the muscle meat. And I'll have some egg yolks. I don't eat the whites because the egg whites have avidin and I don't, that binds biotin. So I don't want egg whites. So I'll just eat egg yolks in the morning. I have these really good duck egg yolks that I like. And then I'll eat some liver and then I'll eat some fat. I've been able to get sort of grass fed beef trimmings and I just start with the actual fat of the animal. And then I'll eat the muscle meat. And that's my breakfast. Then I'll maybe, you know, and I usually eat twice a day and I do time restricted eating, sort of try and eat in like a six hour window or something. And that's just how I do it. My dinner looks kind of the same. I'm trying to get those same things. I might throw in some salmon roe. Um, and then I'll get in the evening, I'll do some calcium, whether from bone meal or eggshells. That's pretty much how I eat. And people might say, oh, that sounds boring or that sounds different. But again, I would say, think about the beginner's mind here. Think about like you're hunting an animal. What is it going to look like when you're eating it? Um, and that's, that's the way it looks. And so it's, it's great. I think it challenges all these notions of using food as entertainment. It challenges all these notions of, you know, really, you know, wanting tons of variety when in fact it's not doing anything for us. So that's, that's kind of how I eat. People don't need to eat in that way. There's a lot of people who do nose and tail carnivore diets in different ways, but it's much more than just muscle meat. Dr. Paul Saladino, the Fundamental Health Podcast. We got to jump over there and listen to that. And just get all over this train. I, you know, I'm going to uh, look back with pride and say that I spoke to you in 2019. And all the listeners to this show will say the same because this thing is about to blow up. You're doing some incredible work. I thank you so much. It's great to connect with you. Uh, so we can we can listen for the podcast. It's It's launched now. And tell us where else we can connect with you. Yeah, it's on iTunes. I've got three episodes out now. Um, I just released an episode today with Dave Feldman. We talked about cholesterol. It was super cool. I really love that episode because lipids are so interesting. So it's Fundamental Health with Paul Saladino, MD. It's on iTunes and Stitcher and all the outlets. I've also got a YouTube channel, which is Paul Saladino, MD. And most of my stuff can be found on my website, which is paulsaladinomd.com. I've got a newsletter, which people can sign up for there. And then there are links to my Instagram and Twitter, which are Paul Saladino MD on Instagram and MD Saladino on Twitter. Follow me all those places if you want to hear about the kind of stuff I'm doing. A lot going on. Keep it up, man. Make sure you make some time to surf and good luck with your relocation to San Diego. We look forward to following you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. Da 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 da. 
Thank you for listening to the show. We would love your feedback at getoveryourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And we would also love if you could leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a hassle. You have to go to desktop iTunes, click on the tab that says ratings and reviews, and then click to rate the show anywhere from five to five stars. And it really helps spread the word so more people can find the show and get over themselves because they need to. Thanks for doing it. Okay, if you're ready to change your life, please check out the Primal Blueprint Mastery Courses, of which I am the host. The exercise was to bring our books to life with a comprehensive online multimedia educational experience. We have the Primal Blueprint 21-Day Transformation, so you can go primal, ditch grains and sugars, learn what primal living is all about. We have the Keto Reset Mastery Course, If you've built up some good momentum and now you're ready to try this keto thing and do it right once and for all and be guided step by step throughout the content in the entire book, The Keto Reset Diet, through video. If you're too lazy to read, just watch me talk you through the whole thing. We also have the Primal Endurance Mastery Course, which is the world's most comprehensive library of interviews with experts, great athletes, and covering the entire content of the Primal Endurance book. An absolute must-have for an endurance athlete who's trying to do it right instead of get broken down and burnt out. And many other ones. We have a stand-up desk experience called Don't Just Sit There with Katie Bowman. We have a Paleo cooking boot camp where you can cook for a couple hours on the weekend and have meals for your family all throughout the week. Great courses. Click the links at bradkearns.com and learn more.